Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. This is Annie. G'day, Marcus. How are you? G'day, Annie. Yeah, good thanks and morning to all the listeners out there on Grand Final Day. Yes, that's right. Very (laughs) exciting for a lot of people. It's a nice day today as well. I I don't think it's going to rain today, is it? No, I don't think it's going to rain now. No, it's It's going to be outside, yeah. It's going to be an all right day. For Good day the... for a barbecue. <laughs> Is that what you're planning? Yeah, barbecue. <laughs> and everybody having a good old uh, watch on the... Oh, let's hope it's a good uh, game. Anyway, uh, that's the thing about the football with uh, a premiership. They're all tired. They're all tired bones by the time they've come to the uh, final game. But uh, let's hope uh, they get through it. Uh, on today's uh, Solidarity Breakfast, I went down to the um, homeless uh, homing public housing uh, vigil down on Parliament steps yesterday because uh, they took the opportunity to uh, bring the message of public housing to the passing crowds who were going down to Treasury Place to start to kick off their premiership uh, parade. Grand final parade, yep. Yeah, a bit of alliteration there. I kept wanting to call it, um, I wasn't falling into step, I was calling it the AFL rally, but it's not, it's the AFL premiership parade. (laughs) (laughs) But I got some nice information from the people sitting on the steps. They started at 11 uh, the night before and they were going to do a 24-hour vigil. There was, uh, while I was there, I was there for about four hours or so and uh, it was a bit cold but um, the people were in good spirits and uh, there were people stopping and having a chat with them and uh, in- interestingly enough there are all these tourists from you know Vietnam that were you know see we go to Vietnam to be tourists but the Vietnamese come here to be tourists and um, which is a sign of economic growth you'd have to say if you're getting Vietnamese uh, tourists. There were Chinese tourists, there were Japanese tourists. Anyway, they were quite interested in understanding what was, I think they were practicing their English. <laughs> and they were also practicing their political acumen and what was really going on around them in Australia. Although it wasn't that hard to uh, see that there's a homelessness problem because there's people all about the place sitting in steps and uh, asking for a bit of a hand. Anyway, so uh, we've got a bit of stuff on that, so perhaps we'll go straight away to to hear what they had to say. Uh, G'day, Sandra, can I talk to you? 
Yeah, you can. Yeah, you've been here all night? No, no. No, no you no, just no, arrived? No, no, I've just arrived. Yeah, yeah, they've said that uh, you're a trooper and I should talk to you about this issue of homelessness oh, yeah. and public housing. Do you want to give me your views on all this? Yes, well, we need more public housing because there are so many people on the streets and they can't get anywhere with um, going to the housing ministry or anywhere um, because there's not enough public housing. And also rents are completely impossible. Um, place next door to me, <laughs> they want... <laughs> it's really a one-bedroom place, nothing. Uh, they want $595 a week for it. Oh, God. What's the suburb? Caulfield. Wow. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. Can I talk to you? Why are you here holding the sign? Why am I here? Because I've been homeless without a home, without security. And at the moment I live in insecure, unstable rent that's in the private market. Um, I live in a house where a, a landlord has one house, one set of utilities, divided the house in two, gets two lots of rent, um, no split utilities, no, no maintenance, nothing. And I'm 62 now and I'm looking about three years time being in the on the pension. And when I'm in the pension, I won't be able to afford to even live where I live in illegal rent now. So... What suburb do you live in? Pardon? In Roxburgh Park. Yeah, so... It's quite far, far out. Yeah, it is, but um, it's, 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 it's a very big rental area. There's a lot of people renting. Um, a lot of investors have bought out there, one might say. And um, look, it's just it's 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 beyond ridiculous that people who get into their senior years, especially women who've raised the kids and buried the husbands and contributed to community and society all our lives as well as work, end up in a position where we've got no superannuation. Um, a government that's, I think, even going to look at forcing us eventually, one way or another, to bring in the, the cashless debit card even to pensioners, and um, and where we have no stable accommodation because there's no rental market for us to be able to, you know, even compete in. And as we try and say with this, bring in public housing at least, then that would bring in some competition to the private rental market but of course the government won't allow that and and likes to keep people in a, in a broken fragile unstable and fearful position and it's um it's, it's very sad that the apathy i've been coming to these vigils for a long time now and I say to Joe constantly, or not constantly, but every you time. You don't want to be an egg. No, no, absolutely not. Pat does a good job of that. <laughs> um, but I, I, I say, you know, I, I was just thinking, hoping that this, like last night, that there would have been more people here. 
Because um, this is a serious issue. It's it's such a serious issue, and it and it is affecting so many. And I don't get the apathy, the the, the lack of involvement by by people. I just it just it just um, and everyone knows somebody that's in trouble and struggling with the rental market, and yet they're not prepared to do what our kids did with climate change the other day. And we need to do that with public housing, but public everything, you know. But if you don't start off with housing, all the roads and trams and trains and railway crossings are not going to mean anything if we don't have a stable society. And I think that, in a way, is where our government likes a certain section of the society to be, in quite an unstable and fearful and beholden place to the government. So. I think that's probably enough. Right, and um, you, you wind up in a, in a vinyl floor in the kitchen area, in someone's house, you don't know where you are, right? Okay, and you're just looking around on the floor and everything, not knowing what to do. And whose clothes are these? Pajamas, yes. Who are these people? No, 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 no. This is when you're seven years old. Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, 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 mum needed a break. Right. Hey, what about me? I need a break to know what's going on. But we could have put your sister out because it's a girl and people do things to girls. Hey, what about fucking me in my mind, eh? And about the way I feel, yeah? And not knowing to start, yeah? And then you get told where Dad found out. Quietly they could say this and I could hear because I still don't understand. You know, you know what I'm saying? All right, and all I can do is picture this kitchen. And then when you do get finally uh, to talk to them, they tell you, in the morning, be right, there's a school across the road, you have people with your own age to play with. I said, you plan on getting rid of me again. All right? Who are those people? Anyhow, so you do go out for a little ride and walk later on the next day, and then get lost. And not know who you're living with, not know where you're living, and not know anything other but the high-rise building that you used to live in. Hey, tell me, what's the difference between that and every other day you lived growing up? Yeah, that's right. And how many more is there now? And now that, but this is the problem. And I'm not being feminine or racist or anything. But why do girls get first priority all the flaming time and they use it and abuse it? Yeah, okay. And us men keep going to the back of the list waiting for these one bedroom flats. But you know what I'm saying? If they're pregnant and they've got kids, I understand. Yeah, and old people, I understand. But how far can I be put in the back of the list? Well, it's the same as me. I'm, I have, I'm 25 months on the Victorian Housing Register. Where's the phone months. number? Where's the phone number to ring? There is no phone number to ring. They just want you to go away. They really are. They right just cherry pick people, mate. You know did that. Did they give you? Um, did they give you um, uh, accommodation in a caravan or something or no. a motel? They don't try to brush you off with even that. They only put me in a hotel when they um, physically removed me from where I was staying in my own tent. Oh. You know what I mean? Oh, okay. They come and set upon you're you. in trouble, yeah, <laughs> otherwise. Hey, but look, you get out of jail, it's not three days no more, it's two days or one in yeah. the motel. <laughs> if you're lucky. Hey, and it's right out in Pandora, like last tram stop, you know what I mean? Right out of the middle of nowhere, 
as soon as you're walking in there, going around the side part, this is like the desi side where the cars pull in and out all the time. It's open space, not in the nice little side where you can have access to a pool and, and see other people and it's cosy and that, yeah, and safe, yeah. Oh no, you're on that part so where, where it's like a drug, uh, it's like a, a track pit stop. I'm on the street. I walked on. Street. Did we walk all last night? Yeah. And sat in a staircase for about two, three hours. You know, some people think that you go to jail and you get out and they house you. Oh, they don't. They don't house you at all. Yeah, yeah. You know that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Some people on the public housing list. They pit people against. They they might say, well, I got. What the whole problem is the transitional housing. Yeah. What you're stuck in. Yeah. No, he's no, permanent. I'm, not, I'm, I'm permanent. Yeah, I know, but. Um, Basically, where can you get, how can you get out? I mean, you're a grown man, you, can't, you have to have photo yeah. ID to have friends. Yeah, 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 yeah. You can't have your kids in that there, or women there, hey. Because yeah. uh, it's all men's hustle. Hey, but all, all the workers are, are women too. Now, hang on a second. What are we all flaming gay? All right, or are we all offenders or something? Uh, Why can't we have families there? Yeah, that's Why right. isn't it reintegration back to the family? You know, you got to understand there's a lot of badness out there, yeah? But there's a lot of goodness too, yeah? And a lot of people got to do the bad way to get into there. It does happen. Crim criminals did have a way before, but it's way gone now. It's way gone, yeah? Can I ask you a question, Joe? Yeah. Um, Zoe was saying that uh, someone came, a lot of support, but that uh, someone came along saying, oh, why, why should my public money be put okay. into public? And you w were pretty short with them. Can you explain to people why this is actually a policy issue that can be changed? It doesn't have to remain um, such a terrible, imponderable public housing. Well, I think this uh, person was somehow thought we were professional protesters and that we did nothing. I've paid taxes for 44 years and I've worked for 44 years and I took it as a personal affront. What you can ha when you're working, you can't have an opinion, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> well, no, no, when you're working, you don't want to support anybody else. That's, that's what that, that, was, that was his thing. His thing is, it's my taxes, I keep the world afloat. He forgot that there are workers here and we also keep the system afloat. And even if you get a new start alliance, you pay GST and that is a tax and you pay... A flat tax. Yes, and you pay more in percentage of income than somebody who's very wealthy. So, you know, everybody in Australia pays tax in one way or another. If you smoke, if you drink, if you eat... Eat. Yeah, you name it, you pay tax. You know, pay for electricity bill, gas, uh, water, no. But, you know, you pay tax. And these people who think because they're out there trying to make a buck that they're the only ones who are paying tax and supporting is crap. And I find that extremely offensive now. But on the more important thing is, this is a very simple campaign. It is dreadfully simple. The Labor government, the Andrews-led Labor government, made a decision, a political decision, to put 50 to $60 billion into removing railway crossings and tunnels, because that's something people can see that is happening, and it worked for them at the last election. They made a policy decision not to put any money into public housing and to privatise what's left of the public housing sector. That is a policy decision. Policy decisions can be reversed. And our campaign is very simple. 
if you allocate the money that is raised from stamp duty revenue on the sale of homes, which is $6 billion a year, to public housing. You can house a million Victorians within a decade. You can remove homelessness in, in a month, and you can remove everybody on the waiting list within a year. Because so the, it's not about money? It's not about money. It's about the money is there because the, the from stamp duty on housing is money which is raised from people buying a house. Right Now, if that is allocated to public housing, we don't have a housing issue in this country. So all we need is a majority in the Legislative Assembly, which has 88 members, and a majority in the Legislative Council here behind us, which is 40 members, and the legislation can go through Parliament tomorrow. It doesn't need a revolution. It doesn't need blood in the streets. It doesn't even need a vigil or us, you know. You'd be happy to go home? Oh, I'd love to go home. I mean, I got here at half past 11 last night. It's been relatively cold. Uh, I expected a nice sunny day. I mean, and... Uh, a bit bitter, really. Yeah, and we've had uh, the flotsam... And, and it's going to rain. Oh, it won't rain. I've decided it's not going to rain. We've had the flotsam and jetsam of Melbourne, you know, come up and talk to us, you know, in the... Wee hours. Wee hours of the morning, which is pretty normal. And, uh, you know, uh, we, we don't want to be here. It's a simple issue. It is not complex. They say... Oh, homelessness is complex. And you don't even need to build anything. You spot purchase. In the 1980s and 19, early 1990s, it was Victorian government policy to spot purchase homes around Victoria. With $6 billion, you can spot purchase 25,000 units and homes around Victoria every year. And see, public housing, we should revert back to what it was like, what it was meant for. It was meant for people who could not afford to buy a home. We now have a, a rental crisis. We have more and more people forced into renting. Uh, renting prices go up. Uh, they'll continue to go up. More and more people can't rent. And with, in, with the spectre of increasing unemployment and recession, we may find that middle Australia, like our friend and his little GP thing, you know, our little tradesperson who may find that he can't pay his bills may be joining us because he will lose his home. It's interesting to me too that uh, down the road here we've got this big production going on uh, regarding the um, what they call the AFL parade the day before the premiership. Now I remember because I, I remember people who used to be involved in uh, running Moomba and Moomba used to actually run this parade. It was tiny. It was absolutely tiny in the early 80s. Now the reason why I bring it up is that now it's billed as this major event with hundreds of thousands of people turning up to barrack on their... their uh, if the commercial interests choose to make something happen, then public housing, uh, the issues of public housing could be the same as this rally. It could be a, a huge, um, important change in the way people behave. Well, I think... What people in authority and people with assets understand is you've got a, if you've got a strong public housing sector, it acts as competition with the private housing sector. That drives down rents because fewer people need to rent. It drives down housing prices at the lower end of the market. So there was, there'll be... I mean, they support this because it's a corporate event. They'll make money out of this event. I mean, let's not, let's not forget, there'll be 100,000 people at the grand final tomorrow only 34,000 will be club members. 66,000, which is two-thirds of the of the arena, 
will either be members of the AFL, members of the MCG, or corporate, corporate tickets. So people who support the football all year, for decades, never get to go to a grand final because it's been corporatized. So they're not interested in public housing because it's the same uh, struggle in all aspects of human activity. It's the financial sector, whether it's banking, uh, whether it's transport. You know, you need this competition between the private and the public sector in a, in, in a, in a, in a uh, social democracy. If you don't have that competition, the public sector dominates, and if it dominates, it exploits people, and that's what we've been seeing to late. What's been interesting is the the amount of public support for the idea of public housing. We've been, and especially by young people, and I can understand why, because they can't afford private housing unless they've got the bank of mum and dad behind them. Can you tell me why you're here? I'm objecting to the sell-off of public housing yes. and and public spaces. And why is it important? Uh, what, public housing? Yeah. Oh, extremely important uh, for the benefit of the community, for to house people. I mean, you can just see down the street, just not even 100 metres away, poor, poor buggers are sleeping rough amongst all this sort of festive crowd going on today. Like, they're just completely ignoring these people. It's disgusting. Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Marcus and we've just been listening to some voices down at the vigil at the uh, Parliament Steps uh, reminding people about public housing and uh, the uh, outrage of uh, selling off public land uh, and property to developers to privatise when in actual fact we have a housing crisis. Now you were telling me Marcus, because you're particularly interested in the footy, uh, about uh, what... uh, Joe was talking about there in terms of the tickets. Yeah, well, we're talking off air about it, how uh, the average punter who supports the club, be it, say, today, Richmond, who goes to the footy every week, spends their hard-earned, you know, buys the bloody merchandise, all the rest of the club, can't get a, can't get a ticket to go to the football to support their own team because, as Joe said, 
the majority of the tickets go to the corporate sector or uh, yeah, MCC members who really I don't think are interested in football. It's the, the, the MCC, the corporate elite. Yeah, it's pretty outrageous. I um, went to, a number of years ago, I went to an ACTU conference, which they had at the Etihad Stadium, and uh, I was having a chat with a guy who uh, was, uh, as we were moving from one place to another within that framework, <laughs> great word, <laughs> but the, through the rooms, and he was uh, pontificating. He was saying to me that uh, he comes to the footy, he and uh, that he was uh, looking around at all the spaces that we were walking through, which was, you know, uh, for the various uh, sessions. And he said, oh, I've never been in here before because uh, as a punter, you aren't allowed into these, you know, hived-off areas with the glassed-in sections and all that sort of stuff. It really reflects how corporatized uh, uh, working-class culture that that's what it is. Football is working class culture, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Well, a lot of the clubs used to have working class names, such as North Melbourne, the Shinbaners. North Melbourne was where the abattoirs were. I think Carlton, they were called the Brewers because that's where the the brewery was. So it was beer. Yeah. Born off working class people. Yeah. Stole, it, it was a game stolen off the Aboriginal people, Marn Grook. Yeah, fascinating. It's, it's, it's a really interesting uh, uh, example of how... Uh, um, Money is made and out of exploitation, effectively. Yeah, it's a prime example. I mean, yeah, the players have have a union and they've got to fight as well yeah. to get a fair share of the bloody wealth because, yeah, yeah. there is an enormous amount of wealth generated by the television rights and so on. What, what's the name of that uh, singer that was supposed to be going to do, which is uh, uh, to do a uh, the opening for the Melbourne Cup? But what was her, What's her name? Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift. Uh, they did this big advertising campaign saying that, uh, well, well, actually, no, the mainstream news did their publicity for them, saying that Taylor Swift was going to be the singer at uh, the festivities at uh, the Melbourne Cup. And then a couple of weeks later, it says that she's withdrawn. But I remember thinking, they must be making so much money because Taylor Swift is at the absolute pinnacle of her career. The idea that she might come out here to sing at a sporting event is extraordinary. Yeah, well, the VRC is another club just like the MCC. It's yeah, yeah. Where all the, the, the amount of money that these people must oh, be. Yeah. They must be, uh, what is it, uh, McDuck, uh, <laughs> <laughs> swimming in, the, in, their, <laughs> in their money at their uh, Olympic-sized pool at the bottom of their uh, <laughs> digs. But anyway, let's move on. We're going to, uh, you're on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, and uh, last week on Saturday was uh, International Day for Peace and uh, Climate Action uh, put together by IPAN uh, event down at uh, Federation Square. And uh, we've got a few voices from that particular demonstration, if you were unable to go. Hello, comrades. Uh, yes, sir, my name is Scott, and I'm a proud and active member of the Electrical Trade Union. And I want to start by acknowledging that we are in a climate crisis. And if unprecedented action doesn't start soon, we will be pushed towards a sixth mass extinction far sooner than ever before. Our government, despite this fact, is doing absolutely nothing. They'd rather put elitists and companies' profits before humanity's very survival, and it is an utter disgrace. We are not prepared 
for what we are going to face. We will face floods, extreme weather, famine, mass migration, and we can already see it with the bushfires that are happening in September. That has never happened in our history in Queensland and New South Wales are already feeling the burn. It is happening right in front of us and it's time for us to do something about it. Once the climate emergency hits us, civilization will break down and wars will be waged as a result to control resources, to control water, to control food. And we need to ask ourselves, who will win that war? Will it be the rich or will it be the poor? Will it be those in power or the working class? This is what our future holds if someone doesn't act now and our government is doing nothing. They are not listening to us. It's already happening in Bangladesh. Due to the rising sea levels, people cannot produce food and they need to migrate to survive. Their neighbouring country, India, is going to run out of water by 2020 in their impoverished cities. What do you think they're doing in Bangladesh? They've built what I would like to call a wall of bloody death. Anyone that tries to flood from Bangladesh to India is either shot for jumping the wall or deported back to inhumane conditions. This is happening today. Imagine what happens when we start running out of water worldwide. It is absolutely disgusting because it is preventable if we act now. Conventional approaches are not working, I'm sad to say. You can try lobbying, you can try petitions, you can try voting, but it is getting us absolutely nowhere. We need to be willing to do something more. We need to be willing to take action for a long period of time. It is our duty as people on this planet, it is our duty as citizens of Australia to fight for the future of our future generations, to fight for the future of planet Earth. Now, there is one mob that is already currently doing that, and that is Extinction Rebellion. They understand what we are facing. They understand that people need to stand up and actually say something and have their voices heard because our government is doing nothing. On October the 7th, we are doing a week of rebellion. One week is all it's going to take for them to listen to us. I encourage each and every person here to take part in that. They are peaceful. They want action and they want to save our bloody planet. It's not that hard, so let's get it done. I'll see you all there, comrades. And our next speaker is Bryder Nichols from the Monash University Worker-Student Alliance. Good on you, Bryder. Put your hands together. G'day, comrades. Um, My name's Bryder. Firstly, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners on the land of which we're gathered here today and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Um, So I'm a proud Palawa woman from Tasmania um, and I think it's important to acknowledge that this land was stolen and never ceded. So today is the UN International Day of Peace. One of our demands here today is for so-called Australia to stop backing US wars and we're calling for peace. Now shamefully there are many barriers to peace. How can we aim for peaceful Australian foreign policy when this country refuses to acknowledge its genocidal past? I'd like to tell you about my ancestor, Malin Agena. He was the chief in Tasmania during what's known as the Black War. But it wasn't a war, it was actually a genocide. So he resisted, like many other Indigenous Tasmanians. um, And our community was nearly obliterated during that struggle. Um, And we've been fighting for recognition ever since. You know, these acts of genocide, 
they're not just left in the past, they're also happening today here in Australia. Um, I'd like to bring your attention to the ongoing cultural genocide that's happening right here in Victoria. The Dan Andrews government is trying to destroy the sacred Japarung birthing trees. Yeah, shame. So we all need to stand in solidarity with the Japarung women. And those trees, those birthing trees, that's women's business. That's for the Japarung women to look after and protect for their future generations. And some of those trees are over 800 years old. Why don't they have heritage protection status? How old is Fed Square? What, one decade, two? Two? This square, this concrete and brick monstrosity has heritage protection status. That is shameful. We can't, there's no way that we can ever truly achieve peaceful foreign policy without confronting our colonial past and the acts of genocide that have happened and been ignored and the acts that are happening now that are also being ignored. You know, we need people to step up to learn about our past, to learn about the history. We need truth. We need justice. We need solidarity. Or else, you know, there's no way we can achieve a peaceful future if we don't recognise the horrible acts of the past. They're just going to repeat themselves until we actually look at them in the face and acknowledge them for what they are. Um, So thanks, IPAN, for hosting this rally today. Um, Thanks, everyone, for coming along. And thank you for letting me speak. This is Irie Lecker. You're here on 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. Also streaming on 3cr.org.au. Free West Papua, Papua Merdeka gets up one talks. And now on Solidarity Breakfast, we're joined by uh, Ronnie Kareni, to be well known to 3CR listeners. Welcome to the program, Ronnie. Good morning, Harry. How are you? Very well, mate. Yeah, so we're going to talk about uh, what's happening in West Papua at the moment. Um, so the West Papuan people have been holding protests in recent times and the Indonesian authorities uh, have escalated uh, violence towards your people, in particularly the last week. Yes, indeed. So that um, sparks off, especially with the, the racism and discrimination slogans that was uh, used by nationalist um, gangs. In, in, in Surabaya, but also in other parts of um, Indonesia, towards Papuan students who have been also organizing massive um, civil protests. And what really sparked this whole um, protest is um, the outcome. One is the outcome of the Pacific Island Forum in Tuvalu in mid-August, whereby the regional leaders, including Australia and New Zealand, recognized the escalating violence and the human rights situation deteriorating. And that really slapped Indonesia on the cheek, especially with that um, call for this ongoing human rights violations and the calling for the visit of the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights to pay a visit and monitor the situation, assess it, and also to identify the root 
course of the conflict in West Papua. And that escalated to an, a scenario set up on the eve of the Indonesian Independence Day. And then that, and there, so when the discrimination slurs were used, this created and united many of the Papuans throughout the region to come out and organize anti-discrimination um, protests and then calling for uh, the right to self-determination. So particularly this week, uh, as we, it's making news, is a protest by the students who have already left parts of Indonesia and coming back to Papua. Over 2,000 students, university students, have returned back to West Papua. They, in Jayapura, they organized a sit-in protest to call for the chancellor of the university in Jayapura to recognize their concerns, especially the right to education. And another protest was happening up in Wamena, in the Highlands region, whereby high school students from year 7, 8, 9, 10 came out to also express another incident that took place in Wamena way by a non-Papuan teacher, a grade three teacher, also used the discrimination slogan on Papuan students. So they wanted to express this, raise this concern to the local government. So what actually transpired from these two events is that the troops came in with a militia groups. Uh, it's a society group where made up of the Archipelag um, Nusantara um, groups whereby they attacked the students on these two occasions. And so that has left with up in the highlands, well over 30 people died from the incident with over 60 um, critically injured from the bullet wounds as well as from the burning of the uh, buildings as well as being hit by rocks. And as well as in Jayapura, four people were confirmed dead three students, and including a, a military. They're very brave, the students, to be standing up like this. Absolutely. They have come out in numbers, and this is not even um, organised through the, the civil resistance frontline organised uh, groups, but these are students um, initiating these ideas to come out and confront the situation, and yes, very brave in coming out. The uh, ability of the Indonesians to suppress uh, electronic media have, in a sense, put West Papua into a quasi-martial uh, law uh, situation. Is that correct? Absolutely. And the very interesting thing that is happening, even in Jakarta, any of the rights advocates, um, sharing information on the Twitter and tweeting about what's happening in West Papua, they become a target of the state. And so yesterday, uh, one of the prominent uh, freelance journalists and filmmaker um, in the last, this week basically, shared some information. And he became a target by the police by which um, they came to his house um, on on Thursday night and arrested him and then 
um, said that they charged him on under some of the debt um, information and technology law um, of 2016, which was introduced, by which spreading hate speech and as well as criminal law and in, of 1949 of, um, yeah, creating divisions. And so now he's become a suspect of, of that under those two laws. And so that is an example. If uh, a prominent um, journalist in Jakarta can spread those truth and facts, what about the Papuans are back home in West Papua? What is their right or raise their voice in speaking up to defend their own rights and sharing those information. And even in those events that have been unfolding since mid-August, internets have been blocked, phone access has been cut out, and particularly in Wamena now is the power outage. So the, the, the switching of the electricity. So many of the people who are now in the hospital up in Wamena who would bullet wounds have not been able to uh, be treated and those bullet wounds have not been even removed. So this is a big issue within families who have, wants to come and take their children just to go so they could do it themselves. But that's, that's what has been um, happening and the families have been coming in and trying to make their way, push their own way into identify their children. And the Australian government has largely been silent in regards to what's been going on in West Papua for decades. Absolutely. Um, the foreign minister have called on or urged restraint on both sides. On and both sides. Is, <laughs> on both sides, yeah. But yeah, very pathetic um, response when was asked by one of the journalists from SBS in New York. And that call um, is... Basically, what she's referring or what she didn't realize is these are peaceful um, high school students coming out in peaceful protest versus this fully armed military yeah. and the police and the, and the militia groups. And so, yeah, very ashamed that the Australian government is not really looking at the scenario and understanding what's really happening on the ground. And but- even... I was just thinking, you know, the general rapaciousness, like um, West Papua has got enormous amounts of wealth in terms of uh, uh, wealth that interests Anglo-American interests, effectively. And the Indonesian government basically acts as a private security force for these Anglo-American interests. Absolutely, absolutely. And that is one of the fundamental factors that has been really pretty much the lives and rights of Papuans um, is, is nothing. And all the interest and importance basically is more on the economic and the resources and the wealth of the land. And so multinational companies have been really um, benefiting and ripping off the heart of Papua and the sacred land, and and especially on top of that, it's those genocidal policies by which the state have introduced and really to silence the voice of the people who are resisting. And as we hear over the last nine to ten months, the incident in Duga area in the highlands 
whereby the government has been trying to push for infrastructural development and the Trans Papua Highway has created a bit of a tension by which the locals didn't want the Trans Papua Highway into those land because that is to give access for the state security forces and as well as the companies by which it's close to the, the Freeport McMoran mining, uh, which now they're doing an under underground uh, operation. And it is very scary because it underground. They are now moving toward other places, which in the Nduga area. And so the locals have been confronting this and talking to the government to not allow this trans Papua highway because it's giving easy access for the, for the security forces and the, and the investors, foreign investors. And so that was an, a conflict that erupted in December last year. And that continues by which already over uh, 40,000 people have already internally displaced from Duga Regency, which make up of 32 districts. And the population is basically within the 90,000 to 100, but half of them, over 50%, have already deserted the, the region. Now, given that the international community is responsible for giving West Papua to uh, Indonesia, what uh, what is the intention of the international community in regards to the present oppressions and murders? It is a long process. Um, looking at the legal argument and then the political argument on that, um, on the international community and the responses from that, um, from regional perspective, what the the leadership within the region are calling now is first they acknowledge the escalating violence and the deteriorating situation on human rights, and now they're calling for the visit of the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. Michelle Bachelet. So that's the first process within the region now calling for an international response, which is the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. And so at the moment, this is now going to be within the next, um, before the next Pacific Island Forum leaders meeting in Vanuatu, and that is going to be held in July next year. So at the stage, this is the call for that visit. And once that visit has been made, then it will. There'll be recommendations that coming out of that. What the response? But meanwhile, from West Papuan perspective, what we're calling now is is that the case of West Papua, since Indonesia occupied West Papua, it was illegal, it was fraud, and it was done in a way that it is not one man one vote. And the manner in which Indonesia occupied was fraud process. So there needs to be an advisory opinion through the International Court of uh, International Court and to give an advisory opinion of the status of Indonesia administrating West Papua. And on the political pathway is the process itself in what happened in sixty nine, whereby the the plebiscite that was called was not done in that manner. So West Papua have not exercised their right to self determination and so that's the bigger call and argument on the political um angle to to have that recognized, given that in 61 was Papua already been recognized um, through a, a legislative council with the Morning Star flag and the national anthem and preparation or roadmap to achieve that freedom in 1970. So that's the two arguments that from Papua perspective we're pushing on that.
And it's been a long struggle for your people, Ronnie. I mean, yes, as you said, for 50 years you've been fighting for freedom. It has been. And um, the, the the hopes and dreams have not been um, um, quite turned down. It keeps on burning. And now that we're seeing it, it's now the younger uh, generations and leaders and we're seeing, especially coming from the high school students, um, it, it, it demonstrated that the struggle is not going to die anytime soon or but it will keep continue until that freedom um, that every Papuans dream and aspire is, is achieved. And you mentioned the uh, Morning Star flag before. I mean, that it's a, a crime, I believe, to fly that flag of independence. Yes. So in '61, after the in in the early '60s, late '50s, with part of the decolonization agenda from the UN to decolonize a lot of um, places around Africa to Asia. And so West Papua was part of this decolonization program in, in, into the Pacific, basically. And so uh, the Dutch, including Australia, uh, were supportive, given that Australia understands it still has some administration in Papua New Guinea. And so the, at the time, the metropolitan powers within the region under the South Pacific Commission uh, have prepared this process. And so West Papua was one of the first uh, if I can say that it's already been prepared to achieve that freedom, and so um, already recognized with that first um, of December, 1961, to have their national flag fly alongside uh, the Dutch, and so at that at that time um, it was already underway that West Papua was going to be the first nation that will be to break away and be a new independent state. But then, of course, with the Cold War um, and then the wealth, which was just touched on earlier on, and the resources. Had, and then that's when the U.S. had that interest, strategic and economic interest, over the, what that program for of um, um, decolonization. And so up until now, this, the Morningstar flag is still an outlaw symbol. And, but it is a, a symbol that also unified, and it is also the sim- symbol that really brings together the hopes for the West Papuan people. What do you want people here to do to help? So yeah. the call for the the people now at this very moment uh, with the, what's happening on the ground yeah. is right to the local MPs. And this is the, uh, the op- moment when we call for both sides of the parliament to look into and revisit the Lombok Treaty, because one is that the Lombok Treaty, which was signed, um, is silencing the voice of Australia government uh, to not speak up about the human rights situation, what's really happening on the ground. And this is an immediate call that um, people uh, could write to the local MPs and to call for this Lombok Treaty to be revisited. And, and so it has to be, have a space whereby the leaders can also speak up about the human rights. When they can, if they can respect the in territorial integrity of Indonesia and increase their security cooperation with Indonesia, that also must come with third-party responsibility on situations on human rights. And so that is very critically important and immediate. And also we have the, the office down in Dockland. Uh, the women office, which they've run some campaigns and they did a petition, which was already handed in 
to the parliament um, to represent the voice of those who are concerned so people can still um, visit the, the office and, and lend some support there because there's some campaign for next year that we really want to push the campaign for decolonization and register West Papua back to the decolonization list. And so that is the bigger campaign around that. But meanwhile, we also have uh, various um, campaign groups in Ballarat. Uh, we have John Lawrence. Um, of course, uh, Dr. Joe Toscano is also uh, doing the rent collective. People can join that so that that helps as well with the office as well as the work that the Papuans are doing. So, yeah. Yeah, thanks for joining us this morning, Ronnie. And, uh, yeah, keep us updated and we'll have you back on the show. Soon. Thank you very much for the opportunity to have this conversation to both of you, Ari and Annie. See you, mate. Thanks. Thank you. A weak solidarity, Bricky Team listener, when forgive me if I don't make it without throwing up as, as I've been suffering acute nausea since hearing big supremo scuttle them more lash sons obsequious bowing and scraping and bootlicking speech the other day, the one in which he told US of the UN of the US of the world big supremo Donald Trump or the paw how much we all loved him and his US of as he scuttled, scuttled them live dangerously given the US of phobia we reported last week, this concern that the US of Capitalist Party, which controls every aspect of US of life, is having too much influence on true blue Aussie, may pose a security and economic threat. But the nauseating bootlicker scuttled them obviously thought scuttling off to the US of preferable to suffering these upstart mere children luring thousands and thousands of people onto the streets of Trublawazi. But sadly, Scuttledem couldn't escape the issue as children all over the world lured millions onto the streets. So poor Scuttledem was forced to give sage advice to these children. In explaining the beginnings of nausea, I said the one because Scuttledem really got into assisting the private health industry this week with two sickening speeches. Give sage advice to these children addressing true blue Aussie children from the UN of the US of the UN of the world and telling them it was wrong to worry about the world that would be or might not be their futures, that they must look positively toward that future. After all, he gave them hope. You probably won't always have a government that doesn't believe in and ignores the crap. Donald and Scuttle them were at the UN of, the, of this week not to waste time on the crap, but to discuss ways of making the members of the US of Capitalist Party even richer, which will make the world richer, trickle down, up, across, over, whatever. Exemplified after they got their orders from one of the US of Capitalist Party members, Anthony Yora Pratt. A true blue Aussie member of the US of Party, doesn't it make us proud true blue Aussies to know how we're appreciated? to open a cardboard factory, part of the empire of Anthony, true there was his richest person, who achieved his hard-earned, well-deserved, filthy rich, obscene wealth, thanks to his father, the corporate crook Big Dick, jumping into the cot with his mum one night. See, Donald jumped when Anthony ordered, Get here! And then Scuttlebeam jumped when Donald ordered, Anthony said, Get here! Great, great, best get here ever, ever! So, get here! And Donald modestly told the Ohio masses, 
why waste a campaign opportunity, it was all down to his policies, including slashing Anthony's taxes. And it all shows everyone is equal. There's no favouritism. No one has more influence than anyone else. The cardboard man or the homeless woman. All equal, because the tax slashing that benefited Anthony will now trickle down to her little gutter, mixed with a little bit of the detritus that trickles down to little gutters. The warm sincerity of these encounters was exemplified by Donald when he took time off from telling Scuttle them, true blue was he was his best friend, to fate the Indian big supremo and tell him he was his best friend. So the highlight of Scuttle them's big week being fated was cardboard and plastic. Because if you can't stop the millions marching, you can attempt to divert them. Although I'm sure he'd like to wrap them in plastic and toss them into the polluted briny. An international version of Sydney shock jock Allen caught in the John's answer to former big supremo Julia Gorlinghard's out-of-control socialism. But we'll have to cut this in-depth analysis here because there's excitement at the ground where the big game is nigh or maybe apparently not nigh. And as usual, we're proud to cross to our wonderful caller, Kevin, and our brilliant expert commentator, Michelle. Well, what's happening, Kevin? A sensation over here. It's touch and go if the game ever gets started. It, it all started when the socialist captain, all being Uzi, won the toss and asked his caring business class team opposing captain Moore Lashson which way he'd kick and then said, we'll kick the same way. Uh, and that was after they both agreed each team would only use the right-hand half of the ground. And the umpires insist they have to kick in opposite directions. A sensation, Michelle. Very interesting, Kevin. It all started when the socialist captain, Mr. Albing Uzi, won the toss and asked his caring business class team opposing captain, Mr. Moore Lashson, which way he'd kick, and then said, we'll kick the same way. And that was after they both agreed each team would only use the right-hand half of the ground, and the umpires insist they have to kick in opposite directions. Stunning analysis, Michelle, stunning. If the stalemate isn't resolved, the caring business class team may be declared winner by default because the umpire supported by and appointed by Moore Lashson, an American with a very strange haircut called Trample the Poor, not his haircut of course, is running out of the centre and kicking goal after goal for the caring business class team. This could lead to a challenge from all being oozy, arguing both teams are kicking to that end. What's going on here, Michelle? Very interesting, Kevin. If the stalemate isn't resolved, the caring business class team may be declared winner by default because the umpire appointed by Mr. Moore Lashson, an American with a very strange haircut called Mr. Trample the Poor, not his haircut, of course, is running out of the centre and kicking goal after goal for the caring business class team. This could lead to a challenge from Mr. All Being Uzi, arguing both teams are kicking to that end. Brilliant, Michelle, brilliant. What a sensation. But look, until we get some action over here, we'll just have to take you back to the studio. Well, let's hope they do get the game started. Thank you, Kevin, and especially thanks to Michelle yet again for her deep expert insights. 
But in the week that was sport, Monday night, maybe commercial telereporter Tony Jones was overcome by all the exciting fashion labels around him as he stood on the red carpet, which is the real event on Brownlow night, the medal of peripheral consideration. Tony was so excited discussing what the women were wearing, he got his words very mixed up. They never fail to disappoint, he blurted. I'm sure the woman would have been thrilled with that. That make-believe artificial just-for-marketing Greater Western Sydney team must have the most popular player in the competition because whenever the club is mentioned, people immediately scream, That Toby Green! He's so popular. I'm sure he'll get a warm reception whenever he goes near the ball. As an occupational health and safety issue, we recommend Richmond provide eye protection equipment for its players. And isn't one of our very, very favourite caring caring employer class moguls, Tony Shepherd the Prophets, such a happy man? Tony, of course, the big supremo of the artificial just-for-marketing team. And what a surprise. In an ABC interview yesterday, Tony talked about the team not as a sporting entity, but in purely marketing terms, the financial benefits of handing his team millions of dollars. So this is not the week that was sport, This is the week that was Business Report. But every time we see Tony, he's laughing and oh so happy, even when we saw him bent over in laughter, handing over yet another report to government on how to make the economy work better for all of us, mostly by smashing evil unions and lazy avaricious workers, which we all know, because they tell us we know, this is good for all of us. But then, in that case, Tony probably was feeling exhilaratingly happy. Not happy, poor Boris in the horrors after the entire Supreme Court bench declared him illegal, 20 or so of them, and Boris declared in turn they were all wrong. Their honours had no idea what they were talking about. And poor Donald facing the biggest witch hunt ever, ever. A witch hunt in response to Donald's witch hunt. Ah, where's Arthur Miller when we need a playwright? We all know the law, of course, can't be retrospective. Well, we thought we knew. It seems this new Smash the Evil Unions bill, which will make Tony even more happy-happy, Evil Unions bill allowing pretty well anybody to demand a union be deregistered and union bosses sacked and dragging workers onto that stake at which witches were dispatched, can be retrospective, showing how evil unions and workers are so evil they must break, stroke, bend the law to preserve the rule of law. Past history can be put to justify deregistration, sacking and other sundry punishments for unlawful behaviour like demanding pay and conditions. Speaking of, super consumers True Blue Aussie, a choice magazine offshoot, reckons thousands of workers are being ripped off by underperforming super funds and lists the bottom quartile in which a whopping, whopping four of the 21 are industry funds and a mere, mere 17 retail and corporate funds, clearly indicating why the government is so anxious to get rid of the industry funds and allow the successful retail and corporate funds to control all that lovely, lovely money. Uh, but, but, but if the industry funds are doing so well, why, why get rid of unions, workers, controlling workers' money? We, we well, well, I asked naively, because the evil unions' funds are distorting the market, we must have a level playing field which is fair to all.
uh, all who. Our only concern is the workers' interests. Finally, back to the Donald and Scuttle Them show and their ignorance, oh, sorry, sorry, ignoring of the UN of Climate Summit and millions marching because they know better, why risk the economy, the welfare of all of us, on something so unproven, apart from the odd, strange, but becoming normal occurrence here and there? Well, speaking, presumably as Donald's lackey, Scuttle Them warned evil, without taking sides, evil China, it must do more to cut its emissions. Ah, again, how can satire compete? Oh, and the game hasn't started. All being easy, still insists on kicking the same way. Good morning. <laughs> yeah, what a great analogy. <laughs> They've all got to kick the same way. Um, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Marcus, and we've got uh, Humphrey McQueen on the line. There you go. G'day, Humphrey. How are you? Oh, very well. Yeah. G'day, Humphrey. We had a Hello holiday there. yesterday. <laughs> we had a holiday yesterday uh, for, for oh, the footy. Of course you did well. No, <laughs> indeed, indeed, indeed. Well. That's hilarious. <laughs> the world stopped. Yeah, the world stopped. <laughs> <laughs> but you want to talk about Uber, and we're dying well, to hear what you want to say. I want to talk about Uber and how it's bringing the modern world to Melbourne, courtesy of the deals who are running the government. But we won't, we won't, <laughs> we won't go down there. Um, but, look, what I really want to talk about, it's a good example of why I want to deal with it. We've got to look at the structure and the nature of capital. You know, because we're on the left, we do have a kind of predilection to look at how badly the workers are treated. And, you know, and so we should. Mm. But to understand how the system works, we've got to do what Marx did. We've got to look at capital and how a big, well, a corporation, I can say a big corporation, a corporation like um, this one, this sort of ride-sharing partnership in Uber, um, how it actually got its money together and what it thought it was going to do and how it was going to advance that money and then what has happened. It's so business that's model, the you side mean. of it I want to look at. It's business model and it's capitalisation. Uh, yeah, and the structure of capital, because it tells us a lot. It's a way of looking at how the whole system operates. Yep. You know, so there's a few lessons in there as well. Now, the first thing to point out about Uber, of course, is that it lost $20 billion yeah, I find years. that amazing. Yeah, yeah, everyone well, talking about it as if it's the best thing since sliced bread. Well, I mean, it, you know, yeah, exactly, exactly. And, it, and that's because of the propaganda narrative. Yeah. And that's the other side of it. Now, they would have lost $100 billion had they not forced down the take-home pay of the drivers which they started to do in 2015. And also, because one of the things they did, when things got a bit dodgy out there, they said, oh, we'll introduce a little fee called a safe rides fee, which will be a kind of insurance policy for anyone who, who, who rings up Uber and wants one. Gosh, that well, sounds like uh, John Howard. Too. John uh, Howard's tax. Yeah, yeah, well, they stole that too. <laughs> you know, so it would have been a hundred million. Uh, sorry, whoops, a hundred billion. Uh, now, then they they went onto the market in May this year uh, because it had been a privately held company until then, and they have an they had an IPO, uh, an initial um, initial public offering of shares to the public in it, and again the propaganda narrative kicked in, and they in order to get people to invest at all, given the track record to this point. 
they claim that, oh, it's going to bring in $120 billion. Mm. Now, it actually brought in less than half that. Mm-hmm. But again, the reason for going into the market and saying, oh, it's going to be $120 billion, is to make people feel as if, oh, I don't want to miss out on this. I That's mean, it's right. It's a big thing. And so, and so there's no to... laws. So there's no laws against false advertising well, on a financial and, level. Well, I mean, this is happening on Wall Street, of course. And there, you know, um, and I mean, people were putting money in. Now, the other thing to remember is that when they say they raised half of the $120 billion, they don't actually raise the, you know, they didn't get $60 billion paid in. What, what that figure is, is that they take the, the, the price of the share and multiply it by the number of shares. And this is what, as they say, this is now what the market valuation is. Now, it's intriguing that it was about $45 in May. It's now down to about $33 a share. Right. So, so someone made you know, some money. Yeah, well, you know, but what we've got to go back to now is where this all started from. And, you know, where did the, you know, was this in some sense a failure of the operation? Well, yes, it was, but how they got started was they raised $13 billion out of the Silicon Valley investors. Uh-huh. And the plan always was to burn through that $13 billion, to use it to subsidise the operation with the plan of driving the competitors, the standing cab companies, out of business. Yep, that's right. They were, it was you know, quite clear said, that's what they were trying to do. You know, I mean, I mean, this was, they'd say, look... These are a terrible group of monopolisers and we're going to come in and we're going to open up the market. And they're unsafe the, and they're sexual predators and all those yeah, kinds yeah, of things. They're yeah, basically but, a scab workforce. Yeah, well, you know, what they were saying to them, but what the plan always was, was to say, well, there's this, there's this kind of monopoly, we're going to drive them out and we are going to become the monopoly <laughs> and then we will be able to take the monopoly profits out of it. Yes. So that was always the plan. Now, that's the bit that hasn't worked. Um, so that we've got to remember what the plan was um, when, we, when, we, when we try and understand where they've got themselves to. Now, in, this had been going on, and they were losing money hand over fist, as we've just said, about 3 to $4 billion a year um, was going down the gurgler. And eventually, funny this, the... Silicon Valley people said, actually, we would like to see a bit of our money back, thank you. And the only way they were going to get that, of course, was to go onto the share market and try and sell shares in the company so that the people who put in the $13 billion and people actually had come along and even later and added more money to it, these people were saying to this, you know, kind of total, total monomaniac um, who was in you know who who was in charge of it? Whose whose idea it was to get the whole thing started? Really, um, you you have to you, you have to make an IPO. You have to go to the market and get some public funds into this because you know we're not going to put up with this anymore. Now at the same time, of course, there's terrible bursts up. There's sexual harassment and bullying and all those other things that happen. There's terrible PR disaster in 2017 but that's not why the silicon valley i mean they knew that that had been going on that was how you ran the company 
yep, how you drove it. Um, so they were quite happy with that. What they weren't happy with is that they weren't seeing the colour of their money as they'd been promised. And he knew that if they went to the market, they would not be able to get the kind of price that they needed because they hadn't succeeded in the original plan. So the board gets rid of him. They bring in somebody else. He initially says, look, this is ridiculous. We've lost, you know, know, $17, $20 billion. We can't go on pretending we're going to make self-driving vehicles and vertical lift-off aircraft, all of this. Because all of that's part of the PR operation as well. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So So are they operating a kind of Ponzi scheme or something? Ah, well, this this is my thought. If you try and understand what they were going to do, it's the front end of a Ponzi scheme. Yeah, spreading the load. You take the money in. Now, in a normal Ponzi scheme, is you take money in from one lot of, of investors on, on the first day, and, th- and then you, you, you aren't actually making any profit or anything. That's right. But what you do, you pretend you are, and you attract a lot of other people in, you know, people who are technically referred to as the greater fools, um, they, that's very technical. That's a very technical phrase. Um, they put their money in, and you use their money to give some kind of high, really rate of return to the first investors, which makes everybody else think, "Oh, I want to get in on that as well." So they give you their money, but there comes a point at which that also comes to an end. But for what, what had happened in Uber's case, they didn't use that, you know, that 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 first, that that front end to. Yeah, uh, to take in more money and to pay the first subscribers. The first subscribers weren't getting anything out of it, which is why in 2017 they spat the dummy uh, and demanded that they go and you know, onto Wall Street and see and see what they could get. Well, as I said, they got less than the what, 120 billion. No, 60 billion. Well, not quite, and it's probably down now to about. Well, forty-two, forty-three billion, or something in the capital market value. Now, um, the important other side of where the capital comes from is it—it it actually comes from their so-called partners, um, because I mean, who are the partners? BHP, Would you call all the people who are driving the cars that supply the materials? Yeah, and well, uh, do all the insurances and yeah, all the yeah. other stuff. Are they partners? They're the partners. Yeah, right. They're so they the get partners. around uh, not having to uh, have employment conditions. Well, I, well, not only that, they don't have partnership contracts. I mean, oh. Uber has a partnership with the Saudi Investment Fund. Oh. That's a real partnership. Right. But partner here is part of the propaganda narrative. Wow. So we so all the people using Uber are supporting Saudi Arabia. Well, I think I think Saudi Arabia is probably <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm the other way the around. Saudi Arabia is supporting all the people using Uber. Oh. Because mm. you know, I mean, the Saudis only one of them, but you know, I mean, they've got so much money they don't know what to do with it either, um, and so they put it into there, and that is subsidising the fares. Um, you know, that's how the whole systems work. And so I mean, they're still hoping to put all the other taxi drivers out of business. Well, they've got no other plan. Uh, and, of course, it isn't working. They've been driven out of whole parts of Asia. It just hasn't worked. And, you know, they've got... Instead of being able to take over the old companies, yeah. which to some extent they have, they've got to, you know, change that market, but other people say, oh, if you can do that, so can we. Uh, 
So they've got competitors in their own game. Right. So instead of being able to get and hold the market, which was the original plan, but what it's meant is that... If you, I mean, if you're an ordinary wage slave, i.e. partner, yes. and you go along to get a job with BHP, mm. they don't expect you to bring along some large piece of mining equipment. <laughs> no, they don't. You know, it doesn't work like that. In fact, the whole of capitalism is based on taking away the workers' capacity to keep themselves. That's right. To actually, to actually take away the productive property. But in the case of Uber, and not only them, we'll get to that in a minute perhaps, uh, not only in the, ca- you know, I mean, the case of Uber, it's up to the partner to supply the item of fixed capital, you know, i.e. this up-to-date, clean, smart vehicle. That's right, and all the, uh, the expenses that go with it. Well, that's, that's the second part. So what we've got, I mean, if you look at capital, you know, there are these three parts to it in one way. There's the fixed capital, i.e., in this case, the automobile. Bill, yeah. Then there's what Marx calls the circulating capital, and well, circulating constant capital, um, and that is with the cost of the petrol and the oil and the and the, and the maintenance and insurance and things like cost that. Cost of fortune. And, and and then in an in an ordinary wage slave situation, there is what Marx called the variable capital, which is the, which is the money that goes into buying the labour power from the wage slaves. Now, what we've got here is that the wage slaves, i.e. the partners, are supplying the fixed capital That's and right. the circulating constant capital. That's exactly right, and they get this pittance in return. Well, I mean... They... A percentage of the well, fair... Well, yeah, well, that's true. But when they started, they were getting more because the plan was that oh. you subsidise the drivers to attract them, you you mm. know you subsidise the fares to attract the drive, and that's how they lost the first you know um, thirteen billion. But that was the original plan. This is what you were going to do. So, so the cost. You see, when, when the point is that all the things that uh, Uber is, you know, the liberation of the flexibility of the workforce and all these types of things and all the costs that the taxi people have are all the same costs that the Uber people must have. Yeah, yeah. In, in, in no real sense can they go away. They've just shifted They them. can't. They've just shifted them somewhere else. That's now, right. Now, I mean... The other, and this is part of a wider strategy that we're well aware of here because we've seen the other examples of it. What they did, what the Uber people were doing in, in, in outsourcing these costs, as they would say now, uh, was they were following on a long tradition of franchising. Yes. And it was really Coca-Cola that made the franchising operate. And what they did from the, uh, from the 1890s, um, there was this tiny little firm in Atlanta they had this essence that they were going to sell and they found equal-sized um, operations around the country who were the local soft drink suppliers. And That's they right. said, look, you've got, you've got the plant and equipment, we'll sell you the essence and you become our equal partners, which is pretty much what happened with Coca-Cola for the next 70 years or so. Yeah, but they also um, did some really underhanded... Um, you know, aggressive campaigning to obliterate local manufacturers as well. Well, I know the poor old Kickapoo Indian Sagwa. 
Mm. Um, on South America know, which, and places like that. Well, yes, yeah. Well, of course, that hasn't worked. But that's well, anyway, story. that's another story. But the fundamental thing is that but it's that exciting. was the old franchise, mm. that with your partners, they were genuine partners mm. in, in that old Coca-Cola franchise. What has happened here is that franchising in the last 20 years or so has become part of the gig economy, part of this partnership notion. And that what we've seen with so many of these franchises, and there's just been a parliamentary inquiry because it's got so disastrous, where the people who who are the bottom end of the franchises, the people who take the franchise to run a 7-Eleven shop or something. Yeah, the they fees, can't afford to do it. Well, it's because of the monopoly fees, etc. Yeah, that's The charges right. that are put on them by the franchisor. Yeah, they're just greedy uh, pigs, basically. And so, therefore, they can't afford to pay their workers. That's right. And it just drives all the way down the system. They have to buy the material, what is in the shop, at a yeah. set price from them. They can't do any of the free market stuff. It so, makes you wonder where the government fits into all this. But anyway, moving on. Well, but there is Uber. Yeah. It's part of this new version of the franchise, uh, not the where you've got a sense of equal partners as the old Coca-Cola model. Now you've got this big firm with all the money that can turn you off. If, if, if you in some way don't suit their interests for whatever reason, good or bad, you then, you, you, you then don't have a job anymore. They'll you are actually sacked. Yeah, Sounds a bit door. like slavery to me. Well, no, no, the no, slavery. no, 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 look, this is a mistake, the big mistake to use the word slavery like that. Okay. This is wage slavery, very distinct from chattel slavery. Okay. Mm. And this well whole pointed. notion that Andrew Forrest is going on about, about modern slavery, you know, they run wage slavery. That's how he gets the money to fund the campaign against, you know, this, this other kind of... Everybody else. ...of slavery. You look at the conditions that are described as modern slavery, yep. how do they differ from ordinary wage slavery? They're more extreme. Yeah, no, that's correct. But they are wage slavery. Yeah, but, and the power relations is exactly yep. the same. Well, you know, I mean, there's a big difference between that and being a chattel slave. Yes. And if you can't tell the difference, you want to try being a chattel slave for a while. <laughs> yeah, that's right. See how you get on. <laughs> get on, yeah. Um, Go and see so, Buoyancy. Go and see Buoyancy, no. the film Buoyancy. It's about uh, pe- people who are in exactly that position. Yep, yep, yeah, well. Now, now, where we're up to with this lot is what are they going to do next? You know, can the company survive? Well... <laughs> What they've got to do is they've got to find something to do with the partners and their vehicles. And if they're going to move, as they keep saying... Now, the other thing is that we're going to be 75,000 automatic driving cars from Uber on the road this year. Mm. There are none. Well, it's very expensive. Well... (laughs) Well, there aren't any, so it doesn't matter what but the price is. But you see, but if you've got automatic them. cars, yeah, I, know. Uh, well, I mean, uh, who's going to pay for them? Well, supposedly, there are two ways in which that could happen. Yeah. One, these poor old partner drivers are going to have to go further into debt oh, yeah, to buy right. one of these new vehicles, and then they can be, you know, continue to be partners. Um, it's a bit with, like truck drivers who are supposed now, to be... how are they going to get the money? Well, in the United States, a good percentage of the Uber drivers are having to sleep in the back of their cars and they're surviving on food stamps. Oh, my Until goodness. Until the subprime market returns out of the swamp, <sighs> I don't see them being able to get any loans to be able to buy the new vehicles. 
So that's one way. And that doesn't seem all that probable, does it? No. The other way, of course, is that the Uber board could use some of its money, its billions, to buy the vehicles and then um, they won't need drivers then. That's right. And they'll be just you know, a straightforward so supposedly, company. Supposedly, they won't. Well, that's the other way. The problem with that is that if Uber were to do that, it would then now be responsible yeah, for its principal for the fixed asset, which it's avoided until this point. That's right. And the deterioration, the wear and tear that would normally in this, plus the deterioration which will come because in any area at all, <laughs> yeah, the first generation thing. product is more expensive and less efficient than the ones that come afterwards. Well, it's interesting um, because I've been wondering about my key system <laughs> when that falls well, apart. You know, I mean, I mean, so if we just said that one of these cars cost $100,000, and then Ford and General Motors come along, and they've got the established sales network. They've got, you know, they are already the oligopolies in the field. They have that big advantage over anyone trying to break into it. Um, they then produce a model which, you know, uh, they produce larger runs. Uh, it's a more efficient model. So the average cost of these vehicles is now only $80,000. So that the $100,000 that Uber has spent, I mean, if that's, I mean, they're not going to go this way. Um, these are just thought experiments. Yeah, yeah, what yeah, they yeah, could yeah, yeah. So out, yeah. So they immediately suffer these, this double deterioration of the wear and tear and of the more efficient, uh, cheaper models that are going to come onto the market immediately afterwards. So my advice to Uber, what should they do? I reckon given their track record of record-breaking losses, they should just give up trying to run a business. But is, is that the business model they're running off, such as Amazon, where they, uh, for the first 10 or 15 years, they budget to run at a loss in order to drive the other uh, players yeah, out of but, the market? Yeah, but they they didn't take in. I mean, the other thing is that there's that the, the money Uber started with, the $13 billion, is 2,300 times greater than Amazon started with. Wow. They were not setting... I mean, Amazon set out to build a business. Yeah. And you they know, did. I mean, they're very nasty people. Fairly nasty. They were operating at the other end. There was no, there was no Ponzi front end for the Amber, um, or what Amazon was going to do. Now, um, there was no sense that Amazon was taking in partners. <laughs> this wasn't the game. So what they could do, you know, and probably the, you know, it's maybe too late even to do this, is to take whatever money they can get out of it, and to begin to do a runner with it and put it into a wealth management fund. Are there real people involved in this at the board level? Are they real people or are they robots? Well, to some extent, well, I mean, they started out... Well, was I it mean, one person? I mean, if you, I mean, if you call... <laughs> a, depends whether or not you call a silicon investor a real person, person or not. Right. <laughs> or whether it's some kind of cyborg or yeah. something you else. You know, it's like but, when they were having those uh, wars and, uh, you know, they didn't have enough uh, fighters, so they put uh, replicas of... Yeah, card- yeah. yeah. Well, but anyway, there's certainly these are what Marx would call the personifications of capital. There's no doubt about that. They certainly put up the 13 billion, and there were personifications of that behind them. They now um, have got some of their money back out of the IPO, not as much as they'd they hoped. They put the money in shoes. about 10 years ago. So I think now the only thing to do is to go to somewhere like the big wealth managed firms like BlackRock. Give them whatever you've got and say, look, 
you get your algorithm to work. It, it's not a very smart algorithm, but it does track the market. We at least get something back. I think, you know, but the, what we've got to do is to become aware in every case, not just Uber, but Amazon, or, but, you know, we've got to look at the whole of the capital structure, follow Marx, and analyse the inner dynamics of how capitalism works. Because if we don't do that, we don't understand why it has to do what it does. It's not that they're nasty people. There are plenty of nasty people. The bloke in charge of Uber, of, of, uh, who was the founder of Uber, is a particularly nasty individual. But they could have been the, could have been the sweetest person in the in world. In the world, yeah, who cares? It. And they'd still have to behave in these kinds of ways. And that's what we've got to understand. All right. Well, we have to go. Okay. All right. Off we go. Bye-bye, Lots bye, of food for thought. Thanks, Humphrey. So yeah, oh, yeah, bye-bye. Yeah, well, that's the end of the program. We are right then. That is a lot of food for thought. Um, earlier in the program, we went to the steps of Parliament House, uh, listening to the uh, home public housing vigil that was held yesterday. We uh, went to... Well, yeah, we spoke to Ronnie Kareni, who's speaking about the uh, situation in West Papua. Yeah, frightening stuff. Mm. We heard a few voices from the IPAN uh, meet at Federation Square on Saturday last for International Peace and Climate Action Day, uh, and then we followed that with uh, Kevin, this is the week that was, and of course Humphrey. We're going to go out with uh, West Palpuan uh, voice, George Tallick, to remind you of how important the West Palpuan issue is, and um, maybe have a good grand final day. You're going to have one, aren't you, Marcus? Yeah, grand final day, of course, I'm tipping GWS by 11 points, but yeah, listeners, make sure you uh, drink responsibly. Listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.